Hey everybody, we just uh, did a, uh, I think an amazing shiur, amazing shiur, stumped the rabbi, beginning we talked about this week's parasha, different prophecies that are relevant to this uh, this generation, uh, in fact some archaeological proofs of Yosef HaTzadik, uh, we also went into Mashiach, clothing, uh, the Metzitzah uh, Peh, which is the big uh, uh, heretic battle that's out there against Judaism, uh, also talked about why I wear the clothes that I wear. Uh, a lot of interesting things. A lot of interesting things. It was a very interesting uh, crowd, and uh, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the uh, the uh, the questions, and I think you will too. So please let me know feedback, what you think, and uh, the ship. We'll uh, hear from you soon. We are uh, back here on a Wednesday night, Stumped the Rabbi, where after some words of Torah, you guys will ask some questions, but Hashem, HaKadosh Baruch Hu will give us the answers. And uh, tonight, we're uh, going to go into a uh, interesting subject of prophecies. Uh, many people like to know what's going to happen in the future. Many people like to know things in regards to prophecies. And a person actually asked about uh, if there could be a list of all the prophecies that are mentioned in the Torah. And of course, this uh, the list is endless. Uh, so it's not possible to mention it in a single shiur, but at the very least, we'll mention some that are mentioned in our weekly Torah portion, Parashat Vayechi. Uh, tonight's uh, shiur is for uh, the Refuah Shlema of um, Rabbanit Levana Bat Sarah, Rabbanit Sarah Bat Anat, Rav Ephraim Ben Shulamit, Avi um, Mori David Ben Esria, Imi Morati Doris Bat Jora, and also, um, um, who else? I remember that there's another name. Uh, forgetting the names. I know there was somebody else, but Hashem knows that uh, I uh, intend to uh, do for their refuah also. Um, so tonight, um, we have Baruch Hashem quite a few things there's a lot of material and uh, you know it's a uh, literally just an endless amount of beautiful things in the Torah one of the things that drives me insane when uh, people comment ignorantly about the Torah especially when they comment about the oral Torah where uh, they uh, insult it or minimize it and uh, really it just shows how ignorant people are if they only knew an ounce uh, of, uh, uh, of a percent of uh, how much is in the Torah, uh, they literally would just, uh, you know, just fall from embarrassment. Uh, now, of course, we're going to try to bring you, have all these different books in front of me, different things that we learned, Baruch Hashem, uh, and uh, try to give you a little bit of taste from different parts of the Torah. Uh, we have, of course, the, uh, the written Torah, we have the five books of Moses, we have the entire Tanakh, but also we have the oral Torah that's comprised of many different pieces. We just have a few small pieces here uh, that we'll bring in uh, to, to try to connect everything and see how, uh, you know, how the, uh, uh, everything connects all together. Now, as far as the, uh, uh, the battles that are in the world today, 
when it comes to anti-Semitism, when it comes to people simply uh, hating Jews, generally speaking, aside from the fact that this is, of course, the hand of God uh, controlling it, uh, because if it wasn't for anti-Semitism, there simply wouldn't be Jews. Uh, and because, you know, obviously one of the things that uh, Hashem commands Avraham Avinu, even before the time that we got the Torah, was that we're not allowed to intermarry with the other nations. And uh, unfortunately, many Jews that don't follow the Torah end up assimilating, end up marrying uh, into uh, different families that are uh, not Jewish. And this assimilation literally destroys this uh, person's connection to Judaism altogether and their, uh, you know, their children become non-Jews. And obviously, this is one of the things that is happening uh, much more today than any other time in recent history. The only other time in recent history that we can compare it to is what assimilation was before the Holocaust. Uh, in different parts of Europe, the assimilation was over 90%, uh, such as Germany uh, and other parts of uh, Europe had a very high assimilation rate. And uh, today, it's uh, unfortunately the same thing. Uh, here in America, you have a uh, over 80% of the Jews in America are intermarrying to non-Jews. Uh, and the main reason for all of that is because of their lack of knowledge of the truth of the Torah, their lack of understanding of their obligation. And uh, one of the things that Hashem does in order to preserve the Jewish nation, uh, in order to keep his promise that he made to Avraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, is he actually uses assimilation to remind us that we are Jews no matter whether we assimilated or not, uh, no matter whether we like to be Jews or not, no matter whether we're religious or not, the uh, the people that hate us hate us all the same whether you're religious or non-religious the uh, reality is that uh, when Hitler came uh, he hated everybody uh, and of course the uh, anti-semites of today are not, not you know the same thing uh, now the big thing that a person can use as his uh, as his tool to give him strength during times like this is knowledge of the Torah but not just knowledge of the stories, but literally knowledge of the authenticity of the Torah, knowledge of the truth of the Torah, knowledge of the application of the Torah and the relevancy of the Torah to their personal lives. And this is one of the things we're going to try to uh, to go into in today's shiur, like we do in all the other shiurim, Baruch Hashem. So after Yosef, uh, you know, meets up with his whole family, we uh, we have a uh, extraordinary. Uh, event take place where after 22 years of not seeing his family Yosef and his brothers are uh, and his father are all back together uh, they're all living in Egypt and uh, of course this is a uh, time where for you know 17 years of uh, extraordinary time because Yaakov is living all the brothers are living all the children are living there's a lot of amazing things happening during his time the uh, the curses on the la on the world uh, and the famine that happened to the world ends. There's an extraordinary amount of wealth that Yosef accumulates for the sake of Egypt, uh, which later on obviously is also acquired by Am Yisrael after the slavery and the sentence that we were there for 210 years. But needless to say, you know the uh, most extraordinary time before the uh, slavery began was what's happening in this week's parasha, which is the death of Yaakov. The death of Yaakov. Now, of course, the, uh, the Torah itself doesn't literally say uh, that Yaakov died. Uh, of course, he passed away, but he doesn't say that he died. And one of the reasons why is because Hashem wanted to teach us that a righteous person 
never dies because his deeds continue on living. All of his good deeds continue on living. All of his Torah that he, uh, all of the uh, chesed, all the kindness that he brought into the world, all of the fruits that he brought into the world continue on living. So Yaakov never died. Now, uh, as far as the spiritual sense, now in the beginning of the parasha, we see that Yaakov is aware that he's going to die and uh, he's uh, first and foremost wants to meet with Yosef uh, and uh, he tells Yosef a few different things that are certainly very applicable to our day-to-day life. Now, when they first meet, when they first meet and uh, Yaakov is in essence uh, telling Yosef that uh, the time has come, it's not uh, the end end, but it's uh, the end is near. He tells him about the prophecy that he had uh, where Hashem came to him, where he says, El Shaddai was revealed to me in Luz, in the land of Canaan, and he blessed me. So this is a common name that's used for Hashem. Uh, Hashem, of course, means the name. It's not the actual name. It just simply means the name. Uh, And the reason why we uh, Jewish people use Hashem rather than actually saying the name like many Christians like to do is because you're forbidden from using Hashem's name just for conversational purposes. You're only allowed to use Hashem's name when you're reading it directly from Scripture or when you're saying an actual blessing. And even the names that we say in Scripture, uh, even the names that we say in blessings are not the ultimate name that is only revealed to some throughout all of history like the Kohen Gadol. But uh, of course, one of the uh, names that Hashem has is this El Shaddai. Now, uh, when a person is teaching, he can use these names. But when you're just having a conversation, you usually say El Shakai. Uh, Why? Because you don't want to necessarily say the full name. Even though, again, it's not the ultimate name, but needless to say, it has an extraordinary amount of holiness. Now, why is Hashem called this name and many people use this name many people even foolishly uh, make uh, some type of meme and put it on their facebook or other type of social media profiles thinking that it's cute thinking that it's a a nice thing to do but they don't realize that you're not supposed to use god's name for these types of things needless to say where is the source where is the source for this name where did this name come from of course we have a source in the torah but why this name why not something else so the Gemara, the Talmud, in Masechet Chagiga, and page 12a, says that uh, before the world came into being, there was only God. And God had to, in essence, minimize himself in order to make room for his creation. And he started the world with a single dot. And he expanded it, expanded it into the universe, expanded and expanded, and then he roared in order for the expansion to stop. And the heavens feared him from that roar of God that they stopped. This is the reason why we say the fear of God is is called Yirat Shamayim, the fear of heaven. What fear of heaven? When God roared at heaven and heaven stopped. Heaven stopped expanding. But why is what is this connected to this name, the uh, uh, the El Shakai that we mentioned? It's the El means God. And uh, 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 the Shaddai is, is referring to the God that said die, the God that said stop, stop expanding to the universe. This is the only aspect 
of the uh, evolution, if you will, that's actually correct to a certain extent, where they say the universe expanded, it started as small and expanded. This is actually something that is from the Torah. Their mistake is that they think that the universe is continuing to expand. If God said he stopped it, he stopped it. Now, the point being here is that we see that every every word in the Torah has a background story, has a significance to it. And it's important for a person to learn these things because the more you learn about a mitzvah, the more you learn about a specific person, the more you learn about a specific time, the more you connect to it, the more it becomes real to you. This is one of the things where the Havdil, uh, a big difference between uh, the Holy Torah and Hollywood, but this is one of the things that the, the videos of Hollywood do very well with, where they actually bring these characters to life and people literally start thinking that these characters are real people and they have real relationships. And sometimes when they see these actors in their normal day-to-day life, they still think that they're this superhero or they're this person that they saw on TV. Obviously, this is a very sad case of, uh, of delusion, but needless to say, when a person learns uh, enough about something where they could picture it in their mind, they connect to it deeper. And this is one of the responsibilities that every person has when they're learning the Torah to learn as much about the subject as possible in order to connect to it. Now, the prophecy that... Uh, uh, Yaakov had that he told about that he told to uh, uh, to Yosef continues, but one of the things that Yaakov spends more time on is letting Yosef know that uh, Hashem had shown me even your children, where he said, "I never thought that I would see your face, because I thought that you died, but here Hashem showed uh, uh, has not only showed me you, but even your children." This is a very critical life lesson. For every single person out there that's dealing to different time, difficulty time uh, in times, where you just lost your job, you're having problems with your marriage, you're, or it's a divorce, or you're uh, having a health crisis, or anything like that. One of the foundational principles in Judaism is to have bitachon and Hashem, is to have confidence in God, that He is the one that's running the world, that He is the one, as the Chovot HaLevavot says, in Shara Bitachon, that he's the one that created you, and therefore he's the one that knows what's best for you, what could hurt you, what could help you, much more than the picture that we see, the perspective that we see. So certainly whatever you have that's going that you're going through is the best case scenario from all of the options that are available out there, even though it doesn't necessarily seem like it. And when a person is quick to lose hope, quick to you know lose uh, all of their... Uh, uh, momentum to continue going they have to be reminded that even Yaakov even Yaakov had doubts that uh, listen it was realistic that uh, he thought that his son died he hasn't seen him in 22 years but he says look this is what I thought and this is what I was sad about for 22 years but not only did God show you to me eventually but I even merited to live long enough to see your children and this is one of the most beautiful things about life that Hashem provides to us, where every time a person goes through whatever experience they're going through, whether it's good or it's bad, people tend to think that whatever experience they're going through is permanent. If you have sadness, you think that you're always going to be sad. If you have happiness, you think that you're always going to be happy. 
And this actually sets up a person for failure. Why? Because you're always not, you know, you're, you're sad today, but you're not necessarily going to always be sad. The problem is that if you have that type of mentality, that even the happiness is going to be with a grain of salt. You're not going to enjoy the happiness as much. So you're already setting yourself up for failure where even the happiness is not going to be as sweet as it's supposed to be. On the other hand, when a person is very happy, he's, he's going through a good thing and good things are happening to him, and he thinks this is going to continue. He's going to continue making a fortune. He's going to continue uh, succeeding in whatever he's doing. This is a setup for failure. Why? Because life is a circle. There are times you're going to be up. There are times you're going to be down. And anytime a person looks at life as this is the way it's going to be, you're simply setting yourself up for failure. The healthy way to look at life is to simply see what you have today, see what opportunities you have today, see what difficulties you have today, do whatever you can to deal with today. Don't spend so much worrying about yesterday or any time that happened in the past because there's nothing you can do about it other than learn from your mistakes. And most importantly, do whatever you can today to set up for tomorrow. Do whatever you can today to make yourself, put yourself in a better position for tomorrow. Don't worry too much about the future as far as 10, 20, 30 years because no one's even promising you tomorrow. But needless to say, do whatever you can to make sure that tomorrow at least you're in a better position than you are today. Which means that most importantly, a person has to spend their time focused on today. When a person focuses on today, that means you're going to put as much of yourself into the world as you possibly can and not waste your time being sad about stupid things. And certainly, you're not going to be overly elated about things that, realistically speaking, are going to go away at some point or another. Nothing lasts forever. So this is one of the things that also, again, we can learn from Yaakov that he even himself says, I was surprised that I lived this long to even see your grand, to, to see my grandkids. Now, later on, he, uh, he, of course, he thanks Hashem many, many times. Where he says, oh, Hashem, uh, uh, whom uh, my forefathers served, Hashem, who sustains me from my inception until this day. These are different ways the Yaakov Avinu is recognizing the Creator and, the, uh, and, and perhaps uh, something that is undervalued in the world today simply because people put too much faith into themselves, into their own abilities. They think that they are the ones that kicked the ball. They are the ones that made the money. They are the ones that found this employee or they are the ones that found this product or this stock or whatever they did, people give themselves too much credit and to the extent where they forget that there's a hand that feeds them. There's a hand that decided everything that you have. On Rosh Hashanah, Hashem decides what everyone in the world is going to have during that year. How much money you're going to make, how many children are going to live, how many people you know that are going to leave this world, whether you're going to live or die, get married or get divorced. All of these different things are decided on Rosh Hashanah each and every single year. Which means that everything is from heaven except the fear of heaven. Which means that the only thing that you can tr- that's in your hands is whether you're going to follow God or disregard God. The actual outcome of your actions is not really in your hands. Now, a person can say, like a, you know, a, a, a woman asked me today about uh, the issues of money. He said, uh, you know, you're saying that or the Torah says that uh, all the money that you have is uh, is is from God. She said, this is hard to accept rationally simply because if I have a job right now where I'm making $50,000 
and then I find a new job that is $150,000, are you telling me that even if I didn't get that other job and God would have wanted to give me $150,000 despite me having a $50,000 job, he would have done that? And the answer is absolutely yes. Now, of course, when a person gives themselves too much credit for their efforts, it's impossible for them to accept it because they feel they worked, therefore they got. They feel they've exerted themselves, therefore they yielded whatever benefit they have. And that's the mistake. That's the mistake that people have by giving themselves way too much credit, forgetting that God is the one that decided whether you're going to get the job or not. God is the one that decided whether you're going to be capable of performing in the job and last but not least God is the one who decided how much money you're going to keep because just because you have a higher income doesn't necessarily mean you're going to become richer plenty of people make millions of dollars but yet end up with a negative balance sheet at the end of the year there are plenty of companies in the stock exchanges that literally make hundreds of millions of dollars but yet at the end of the year they report a loss how could this be simple god decided that they're going to have more expenses more liabilities than they have income than they have resources so even though a person could move from a job of fifty thousand dollars to five hundred thousand dollars it doesn't necessarily mean that they're necessarily going to have more because God could simply decide, yes, you got $500,000 more, but you don't deserve $500,000 more for whatever reason or another. You're not following God or uh, Hashem is trying to warn you. Whatever the reason is, you don't deserve it. So what does God do? Simply, he give you problems. All of a sudden, you have a higher tax bill. All of a sudden, somebody decides to, to sue you. All of a sudden, a divorce. All of a sudden, a medical bill that was unexpected. All of a sudden different types of expenses appear where by the end of the day your five hundred thousand dollars only yielded you you know five thousand dollars that was actually left after all expenses whereas when you had that job of fifty thousand dollars you actually had ten thousand dollars left how could that be very simple god is the one that decides and that's also the reason why in judaism we make a blessing if we lose but we don't make a blessing if we inherit why if a person loses money at the very least they know that this loss is going to be at least a sacrifice for whatever sin i made that this is taking in against on the other hand if somebody has a huge abundance that he received as an inheritance the sages teach us not to make a blessing and the reason for that is because sometimes god uses wealth as a form of punishment where the wealth is actually to his detriment rather than to his benefit so a person always has to understand that you always have to bless god you always have to thank god but don't necessarily think that the uh, a lot of money is always a blessing you have to obviously realize that whatever you have is thanks to hashem it's not thanks to your ability it's not because you bought the lotto ticket it's not because you went anywhere it's simply because god decided that the stock is going to work or the lotto ticket is going to win or that your wife is going to be suddenly getting an inheritance or you're going to uh uh invent something all of these things are decided by hashem now whether they're decided by hashem to your favor or against you that is something that you can determine how simple view yourself and compare yourself versus what the Torah obligates you to do. If you're Jewish, do you observe Shabbat? Do you eat kosher? Are you modest? 
Are you, uh, do you give tzedakah? Do you uh, eat, uh, eat kosher? Do you learn Torah every day? Do you uh, uh, invest into the world of Torah? Do you care about Hashem? Do you fear Hashem? And so on. All of the different mitzvot that we have in Judaism, there's an endless amount of responsibilities that each and every single Jew has. Most importantly, did you make the money that you have in a kosher way? Are you ethical? Or are you stealing from people, cheating people? Are you one of the reasons why many uh, non-Jews that were already anti-Semitic are simply using that as an excuse to hate us even more because you're one of the people that cheated them? So a person that understands their responsibility in the world in accordance to the Torah could clearly get to a conclusion of whether whatever they're getting is a blessing or a curse. Whereas on the other hand, if a person that is not following the Torah but is still aware of it can also see that it's very likely that whatever they're getting is a curse. Whatever they're getting is to their detriment. Now, on the other hand, if a person remains ignorant, then surely they're not going to know whether it's a blessing or a curse, and that's why they're destined to fail. This is why the, the vast majority of the world is just, uh, you know, it's one success for every 10 failures. But you only hear about the successes in the news because usually they're much more interesting. Now, the uh, next thing that we could learn from the, uh, from the parasha, because there are simply many, many different things. Each one of these topics, we can go on for five hours. Uh, but I want to delve into a few different things. Also, maybe perhaps uh, if we have some time, show you some interesting pictures from archaeology uh, in regards to the time of Yosef. Uh, also to deal with some of these uh, Hebrew-Israelite claims about how they believed that the Jews were Egyptians and they were dark. So we have, Baruch Hashem, an endless amount of Torah uh, that's available to the Jewish people, and there's no nation on planet Earth throughout all of history that has as much documentation and, uh, and justification for their existence than the Jewish people. So anytime somebody comes to you and tells you, no, you're wrong, we don't necessarily need to debate. Why? We have proof for everything we say. While they think they have proof, but the interesting thing is, is that their proofs are usually brand new. They just create it as they go along with every video, with everything. And yet our proofs are from ancient times, from thousands of years ago and still obviously available today. Now, the next thing that we see Yaakov do very uh, differently with Yosef and his sons than he does with the rest of his sons and his grandsons is that he tells Yosef that your kids, Ephraim and Menashe, are going to be like Reuven and Shimon, meaning they're going to be like two tribes. Now, why didn't Yaakov do this with the rest of his grandsons? Now, we already know that from the list of 70 souls that came from Canaan to Egypt, that there are other grandsons. Why didn't Yaakov choose the other grandsons? I mean, surely they were righteous, surely they were decent, surely they were good. I mean, obviously they were related to him. Why did he specifically choose Yosef's children, Ephraim and Menashe, as the ones that are going to be part of the tribe? In fact, you could even ask a further question. We know that Yosef had other kids. Some say he had other kids at this time. Some say he had kids later on in his life. But needless to say, he had other kids, and Yaakov specifies that only these two sons are going to be an addition to the tribes, not your other sons, not your other children, meaning not only not the other grandkids, but also not even Yosef's other kids, where there's something clearly special about Ephraim and Manasseh. Now, one of the things that we see here is that Yaakov Avinu is giving us a hint. 
He's giving us a hint because one of the things that he tells his children before he dies is, let me tell you about the end of days. The Gemara in Masechet Sanhedrin says that there were two people that knew the end of days where the exact time of when the Mashiach will come. There are some that say that other prophets also knew when the Mashiach will come, but it's conclusive that at the very least, two for sure knew when the Mashiach was going to come because there are verses where they simply say it. Yaakov and Daniel. Yaakov says, let me tell you to his sons, let me tell you what's going to be at the end of days, meaning that he knew what's going to be at the end of days. And yet this connects everything we're going to talk about and everything we've talked about together. Why? Because Yaakov Avinu is in essence telling his sons, you have to prepare for the end of days. The end of days where the Mashiach is going to come, one of the things that's going to stop is that there's not going to be any more tshuva. There's not going to be any more repentance. There's not going to be any more opportunities to fix yourself. All the fixing, all the repentance has to be done before the Mashiach comes. And anyone that's aware of how much it takes to do tshuva, to change your life, is aware that you need as much time as you can. So Yaakov Avinu is telling us, you have to prepare. You have to prepare for that day. One of the things that the Rabbi Chaim Moshe Luzato, the Ramchal, wrote about 350 years ago, is that if a person wants to learn Torah, they should learn from a Baal Tshuva. They should learn from somebody that used to go be on the wrong path and has chosen the right path. A right, you know, Baal Tshuva, not just any Baal Tshuva, but someone that's truly committed and has changed their ways drastically to the positive. Why? Because they're not only going to tell you what not to do, they're going to tell you from real life. They, they've chosen that choice. So here Yaakov Avinu is telling us these two sons, these two sons, Ephraim and Menashe, are different than the rest of the sons. Why? The rest of the grandkids, they lived under my umbrella, Yaakov says. They lived under my umbrella, the yeshiva we have, we had an, uh, under our umbrella in Canaan, there's the yeshiva of Shem and Ever, there was the yeshiva of Yaakov. They lived a from life, they live a religious life. All they saw was Yaakov and his sons, and that's it. They saw religious people their whole life. Whereas your sons, Ephraim and Menashe, all they saw were non-Jews. They saw Egyptian idol worshippers. That's all they saw. So what? why is that a good thing? Because despite them living among the non-Jews, they still remained righteous. They still remained loyal to the Torah. That makes them unique. That puts them in the same caliber as the rest of my sons, the rest of the tribes. They're also able to overcome major obstacles. The rest of the grandkids, we don't know if they're able to overcome these obstacles because they were never tried. And we don't want to necessarily try them for no reason. It's like you don't want to necessarily send your kid to uh, an unknown school if you're not really sure who's going to teach and what they're going to teach. Lest you find out that they're teaching your kid that's a boy to be a girl and they're teaching your girl to be a boy. And chash v'shalom, they're trying to teach your kid that uh, he should be even a different religion. In today's schools, you never know. It's 50-50 shot if even your kid's even going to make it with all the school shootings they have in America here. So here Yaakov is telling us there's no reason to take unnecessary risks. But if someone already overcame a major obstacle and succeeded, certainly that needs to be recognized. This is why Ephraim and Menashe are not only the ones that are utilized as, uh, are added to the tribes, but they're also the ones that every Jewish parent, regardless of your Ashkenazi or Sephardi or, or a Yemenite, 
all Jewish parents have the same tradition of blessing their children on Friday night uh, based on the, uh, the, the, the merits of Ephraim and Menashe, meaning may you be like Ephraim and Menashe, which is in essence telling, giving your kids the blessings to overcome the major spiritual obstacles that surround them. After that, we see that Reuven, Reuven is the firstborn son, and he gets the first blessing. What can we learn from Reuven's blessing? It says, Reuven bechori, ata kochi vereshit oni. Yeter se'et v'yeter az. The Torah tells us, Reuven, you are my firstborn, my strength and my first vigor, exceeding in rank and exceeding in power. Here Yaakov Avinu is teaching us something extraordinary. One of the main things that made Yaakov extraordinarily holy was the fact that he protected his breed to such an extent that a seed did not leave his male member until it was utilized for his firstborn son, Reuven. He was so holy that he didn't even have nocturnal emissions while he was sleeping. He was he obviously didn't uh, waste seed, obviously did not do anything intentional, but... His holiness got to a, such a high level that he didn't even fail unintentionally during sleep. The first seed that ever left his body was the one that was utilized to bring Reuven to the world. That's why he calls him, you are my uh, strength, my first vigor. So here we see that when a person protects their, their bleat, not only are they bringing blessing to themselves, but they're also bringing blessing to their children. They're bringing blessing to their children because a child that comes from a holy breed, a child that comes from a holy home, is certainly going to have many more uh, spiritual benefits than a person that's coming from uh, all types of other things. Now, later on, we see something very interesting. We see that the, um, the blessing that Hashem gives to Shimon and Levi is very, very different. Very different than the blessing that uh, he gives anybody else where he says to shimon and levi that uh they're obviously there for their rage they committed the killing and at their whim they smashed the wall of the enemy this is when their sister dina was raped by shem and uh shimon and levi ended up killing the entire people all of the people all of shem and uh this was against the uh this is not what yaakov wanted he didn't think that they were going to do that but nonetheless he didn't rebuke them at the time he actually waited all these years to rebuke them and he says here accursed is their rage for it is intense and their wrath for it is harsh so he doesn't actually curse them because obviously there is children he loves them but he says that their anger their rage is extremely harsh now, one of the things that the Rambam teaches us in his, um, uh, in his books, in his Yad Chazaka, and uh, also in a uh, different commentary on the Mishnah, is that when it comes to character traits, a person has to always uh, lean towards the middle, meaning don't be extreme on one end and don't be extreme on the other, except when it comes to specific things such as anger. Anger is something you have to be extreme with, which is meaning stay as far away as possible from anger. Why? The Gemara in Masechet Shabbat, on page 108b, says that um, a person that expresses their anger in such a fashion where they throw something, they rip something, uh, they express it in a physical way, they hit somebody, 
you could already consider this person an idol worshiper why because this person obviously loses control of himself to such an extent that he simply has become a servant to a different god who is this god is evil inclination today this uh, evil inclination is telling him to throw tomorrow he tells him to hit the next day he tells him to go serve an idol and he's going to do that too why because a person that cannot control themselves is a person that is simply not aware that there's a god in heaven that is aware of everything that you're doing and everything that's happening to you guess what guess who's pressing the buttons he is so when you're angry that something broke when you're angry that someone said something to you you don't like when you're angry that you lost something in reality what you're not realizing is that god is the one that decided that all of this is going to happen for a reason there's a reason for it so the angrier you are the more you're seeing that you're completely unaware of this divine hand that's in control of everything so hence the reason why it's considered as if a person is uh practicing idolatry now one of the beautiful things that you can learn from the sages also is that many people tend to get angry obviously some people more some people less and of course everyone that is normal would like to get rid of their anger and i promise you their their spouse wants them to get rid of that anger even more than they want to get rid of the anger themselves now i want to tell you a few things that perhaps will give you a boost a boost and an encouragement to try working on it not by working on your anger where you simply contain it in yourself like some of the self-help gurus say listen if you're angry just you know hold your breath for 20 million seconds and you know if you don't die then you won't be angry either no not getting angry is not about containing it and just living it letting it live inside because eventually it's going to give you a heart attack in order to get rid of anger you have to be aware that there is a divine hand that's in control of everything the more you're aware that god is in control of everything the less reason you have to be angry now to do that you obviously have to learn torah you have to learn musar now one of the things we learn in this uh extraordinary book that i've recommended several times to people to remove your anger from your heart it's a very famous book that many of G'dolei Israel, like Rav Kanievsky uh his father the stipler Gaon Rav Ovadia, and many many of G'dolei Adol uh highly recommended and read themselves is this particular book because everyone has different reasons to get angry of course it all depends on how angry you get but at the same token you need as much motivation to remove it from your heart why because it's simply not a good life to be angry one of the things that the Sefer says on um, page 165, he says, Fools fast and afflict their bodies with immersion in ice cold mikveh. If they would conquer their rage, it would be greater than a thousand fasts. If you hear someone reveal your shame and remain silent, this is better than a thousand days of fasting. And a holy man once turned and said to a man who humiliated him and cursed him publicly, may Hashem reward you for having torn away the decree of death that I was supposed to receive this is the source from it is the uh Likutim of uh, Rav Moshe Leib Misasov one of the sages from the previous generations now here he's telling us a handful first and foremost he's calling people that are trying to fix themselves through you know dipping in freezing mikveh and taking on fast he calls them fools why he says if you simply conquer your anger that's worth more than a thousand of these fasts more than a thousand of these mutilations that you're putting your body through just conquer your anger it's worth a whole lot more now second thing that he says is that if a person 
remain silent when someone embarrasses them, someone uh, curses them, someone insults them, the value for that is literally not only worth more than a thousand fast, it's literally priceless. Why? Because it's showing the creator above that you are aware that he is the one that decided that this is going to happen. Whereas when you lose your mind on this person because he made fun of you, because he did whatever he did to you, then what you're thinking is that that person is in control. In essence, you made this person, your enemy, a little mini God, which of course is not good. Uh, last but not least, he says that there was an example of a person that uh, was a righteous Jew that got insulted by another person. And instead of being angry, he actually went and he gave him a blessing. Why? He says, I knew that there was a decree for some sin that I made in my life that I was supposed to die early. But because you insulted me and I didn't react, that decree was wiped out. So such is the significance of removing anger from your heart. Even more so, the sages say that anyone who becomes angry is considered to be an idol worshiper. We have no desire to worship idols, so when would we have the chance to overcome this desire? However, when we conquer our anger, we receive a great merit of overcoming our urge for worshiping idols. Now, this is a Sefer Kadosh Israel is very, very valuable for people that either were angry their whole life, or people that used to be idol worshippers, such as people that worshipped Christianity and their little Christian God that died on the cross and all that other stuff. This is very valuable for you. Why? Because naturally, a person does not want to worship an idol unless you know there's something wrong with them and you know this is the uh, in demented culture they live in. But generally speaking, even the people that pray to some statue or even the people in India that pray to a cow or to rats or to a motorcycle and all types of other strange things that they pray to, Generally speaking, they all believe that there is something above this thing, this some other being. It's just that they involve some type of middleman, some type of idol. Either way, the natural inclination of a person is not to want to worship an idol, but if they did, either by expressing their anger fiercely or by actually serving an idol, how do they fix it? How do you fix idolatry? Here's the secret. By a person overcoming their anger, they're fixing their former idolatry. Because the anger of today is not different than the idolatry of yesterday. So by a person actually overcoming their anger, they're doing a tikkun. They're doing a tikkun for their former idolatry that they did, which is priceless for anyone that's aware of what's on the line if a person does not do a tikkun. Then Hashem gives a blessing to Yehuda. And he says to Yehuda, you acknowledge your involvement in the incident with Tamal, and you are not ashamed to do so. And therefore your brother shall acknowledge you as their king. Here Yaakov Avinu tells Yehuda that the Mashiach is going to come from his tribe. He's going to be the king. That not only... King David and King Shlomo are going to come from him, but eventually the King Mashiach is going to come from him, and no one can actually take that away. No nation, no uh, no other Jew, no other non-Jew, no one can take it away. Mashiach must come from Yehuda. 
This is also one of the things that is a problem and a major contradiction in the world of Christianity or anyone that believes in the New Testament in any way, shape, or form, even if they don't call themselves Christians. If you believe in the New Testament, you have a very, very serious problem for believing in a false document. Why? Because on one end, the the New Testament tells you that that, uh, Joseph the carpenter, the husband of uh, Miriam or Mary, uh, he, has, uh, he has two different lineages, depending on where the, you're looking at, uh, which book you're looking at. It shows you 25 different names uh, that he's related to in order to connect them to King David in different ways, even though it's two, 25 contradicted in names in, in the same New Testament. But on the other hand, it also tells you that he's not actually Jesus' father, so, which means that how could Jesus be the Messiah if he claims at the same time that he's the son of God. When the Torah itself, the Old Testament clearly says that the Mashiach has to come from Yehuda. He cannot come from God. So obviously, anyone that believes in the New Testament has a very serious problem. Now, of course, some are going to tell you, no, no, I don't believe he's God. Well, then you can't believe in the New Testament because the New Testament says he's God in multiple places. I, I was here before Avraham, I was, I'm one with God, all types of other heretical, idolatrous statements that are made in the New Testament. So when a person looks at the New Testament closely enough, with an honest eye, they simply cannot stand it. Why? Because it's full of contradictions, it's full of falsehood, it's full of mistakes. And one of the things that we see in our Holy Torah is that there are no mistakes. Everything has an answer. Everything has an explanation. If you don't see it, if you don't understand it, the lacking is on you. But nonetheless, one of the things that we see here is a prophecy, a prophecy where Yehuda is promised to be Mashiach. But if that's not enough, Yaakov also says to him, and your father's sons will come forward to inquire after your welfare. What Yaakov is saying is that there's going to come a time where your descendants are going to be saved because of this blessing. How so? Someone is going to ask about your welfare. Now, where did this happen in history? I'm sure it happened many times, but where did this happen? Something that we could document. In the Gemara Masechet Sanhedrin, page 95a. We have a story from the time of King David, where King David, this is a, uh, mentioned in uh, Psalm 18, verse 37, also in Chronicles 1, chapter 11, verse 20, King David was hunting. And the Yetzirah, the evil inclination, the Satan, came to entice him, to trap him, because there was a decree from heaven that was on King David's head because he was involved, even though unintentionally, in the killings of the Kohanim of Nov when he was running for his life to save his life from Shaul that was trying to kill him. He went into the city of Nov and uh, got food from them and because of that, Doega Adomi saw that the Kohanim were actually helping King David because they thought that he was under the uh, leadership of Shaul, that he was on good terms with Shaul, and they fed him, and Doeg, the wicked person, who lost his share of the world to come, and is in Gainom until this day and will be forever, went and told Shaul that the Kohanim are 
betraying the kinghood. Shaul had obviously made a mistake and told his soldiers to go kill all of the Kwanim. The soldiers knew that this was a mistake and they didn't want to do it. So he told Doeg, since you're the messenger, you go kill the Kwanim. And that's exactly what Doeg did. Which ultimately means that Shaul had to be punished, which he did. Him and his sons died in a war as a result of this mistake. Even though he was a very righteous person, he made this mistake and he got punished for it. Doeg, who was the biggest criminal of all, not only saying evil uh, tongue, he's saying Lashonara, but also actually murdering all of these Kwanim. He lost his share of the world to come. But also King David. King David, even though he was trying to save his life, still, he was, uh, God came to him and told him, Do you, you know, you are involved in this. Do you want the punishment to go on your life or your descendants' life? And initially, David said, Let it be on my life and not my descendants. So because there was a decree against David, the one time that he went hunting, the Satan got the permission to entice him and trap him. And the Satan came as a deer. David tried to shoot an arrow at this deer. He missed and started chasing after this deer. The deer kept running and running and running and slowly but surely got David the Melech to go into the land of the Philistines. Now, once he got... To the land of the Philistines, their hero at the time was a person, a giant by the name of Yishbi. Yishbi Benov. Yishbi saw him and said, Oh, that's David, the one that killed my brother, Goliath. And immediately everyone captured David. And because he hated him so much, he wanted, and he also wanted to impress upon all of his soldiers his wrath. He wanted to kill David Melech in a very, very horrific way. So the first thing he did is he took David and he tied him to the bottom of a huge boulder and he wanted to put him under where the olive press was. So he put him under the rock and he was going to pretty much put another huge boulder on top of it and crush him to death. Hashem made a miracle and as soon as the rock hit the ground, the ground softened enough for David Melech to not be hurt at all. Now at this time, one of the main soldiers and heroes that served David was his nephew Avishai. And Avishai was not only a hero, but was also a very holy person. And Avishai one day, this particular day, as this is happening, is preparing for Shabbat, the Gemara says, and suddenly, as he's showering and putting shampoo on his head, he sees a dove come to his, uh, to his window and nonstop flapping its wings to the point where it's hurting itself. The dove is hurting itself. The, the, uh, the feathers are coming off of its wings. And he understood that this is a sign from heaven, that Am Israel is in danger. How he understood, that's where the holiness comes from. If you see a dove flapping its wings, I suggest you go away and maybe have rabies. He saw the dove, he understood this is Am Yisrael is in danger. And he knew that Am Yisrael is not in war. So he understood clearly that David Melech, which is in essence a representation of all of Am Yisrael, he's in danger. So he went to his house 
to check on his welfare, just like Yaakov said. He went to check on him, and he found out he's not there. And he knew that this is what's happening. He asked the uh, Sanhedrin if he's allowed to take the, uh, uh, the donkey of, uh, of David Melech because it's Pikuach Nefesh. He knows that David Melech is in danger. They pass and it's allowed because it's a life danger. And he uh, had a miracle happen to, hap- uh, happen to him from uh, heaven where he had what's called Kfitzat Aderech, where within an instant, as soon as he went on his way, within an instant, God made him get to the place of where David was trapped. Now, this was not literally right there, but around the corner. Now, as soon as he got there, he knew that he's in the Philistine land. He knew that something is wrong. He obviously knew there's a miracle. And then he sees a woman, an old woman named Opa. Opa is Ruth's sister. Ruth had a sister, if you guys remember from the book of Ruth. Ruth chose to become a Jew. Opa went to be, go with the Goim. And Opa, the Gemara in Masechet Abu says, became a promiscuous woman. She had intimacy with a hundred men in one day. And from there came Goyat and his brothers. So this Opa, which was a Zona, she was an old wicked woman. She hated David Melech because he killed her son, obviously. And as soon as she saw his nephew, she took the pin the spindle from what she was using for uh, for sewing, she took the huge spindle and threw it at him. She missed. But as soon as she missed, she said, oh, young man, I dropped my spindle. Can you please get it for me? She pretended like she didn't throw it at him. Of course, Avishai knew this trick. And he says, no problem, lady. He took the spindle and he threw it back at her and stuck it right in her head and she died. Now, Avishai continues moving forward and he sees David Melech under this rock. He sees Yishbi laughing with the rest of his soldiers. Then Yishbi sees Avishai and he realizes that he has to kill David quickly before Avishai gets to him. I mean, obviously this was a, there was a distance between them, but not enough to not be concerned. Now, Yishbi still wants to kill David Melech in a very creative way. So he, t- he takes David Melech off of the rock and he throws him in the air. And then he puts a bunch of spears on the bottom of the ground. So when he lands, he's going to land on these spears and then obviously get sliced up to a million pieces. And that way, everyone on the enemy side is happy. What Yishbi didn't realize was that Avishai was a big tzaddik. And Avishai knew the real name of God. And as soon as he saw David Melech in the air, he said the Shem the Meforash, the real name of Hashem, which allows a person to make miracles. And he stopped David Melech in the mid-air. David Melech saw this. He said, Avishai, what are you doing here? He says, what are you doing here? I'm here, I checked, I want to check on you, I see you're here. What are you doing here? He says, I was going hunting. And uh, he goes, yeah, but why is this decree on you? He says, oh, the decree is because I was part of the whole nov, and he told him everything I just told you in a, a matter of a few seconds while he's stuck in the air. Avishai says to him, okay, so in order for me to save you, you need to pray to Hashem and tell him to release you from this decree and let the decree go on your descendants. Because we need you, you are the power of Am Yisrael. 
David Melech agreed, prayed to Hashem. Avishai said the name of Mephorash again, the, the, the name of Hashem, and brought him to him. All of this supernatural stuff is the stuff that people see in movies, but they don't need the movies, they just need the Gemara, they need the Torah, they need the writings of the sages, and they see much better stories. Now, of course, Yishbi is not going to let this go, and he starts chasing them. They run away because he's a giant, he's huge, he's powerful. Until they get to a certain town, they decide to stop, maybe try to fight him. The Gemara says they try, they try, they try, they can't beat him, they run again. They get to the next place, they try fighting him again. They realize they can't take him. They run back to where they started. They run back to where they started. But this time, Avisha uses something else. As soon as Ishbi gets there, and he's about to attack them, Avishai says to him, Hey, Ishbi, look at the old lady over there. What do you think? Who's the old lady? His dead mother. As soon as Yishbi sees that his mother is dead on the floor, he loses his strength. David and Avishai attack him and kill him. So from there we see that just a couple of words in our weekly parasha where Yaakov Avinu promises, promises his son Yehuda that one day your descendants are going to be saved in such a fashion because someone is going to check on their welfare. This is one of many ways that this prophecy came true. Then we see after that, that Yaakov is telling Yehuda that his descendant, the Mashiach, is going to wear purple. It's going to wear purple. The colors of purple are the colors of Mashiach. Now, if you see the uh, song that uh, Shlomo HaMelech wrote, Eshet Chaim, the Rav Mazuz says that the color that's being referred to in the song of Eshet Chaim is the color of purple. Now, one thing I can say is that, yes, the sages say that uh, a woman needs to be very careful in regards to modesty. And some say that, you know, it's, a, it's completely forbidden to wear a, uh, a dress that's completely red some say no it's not red if it's purple it's forbidden the truth is is that it's any color that's going to make you stand out like a traffic light so if you're wearing a brown dress you know but it's the type of brown that literally makes people blind in some way on traffic then guess what that's also forbidden we're not saying you have to be ugly we're not saying you have to be unattractive what we're saying you could obviously be uh, uh, look pleasing to the eyes of your of your husband look uh, pleasing but to be attractive to the extent where you're stopping traffic that's a problem some women think oh no as long as I don't wear red then everything is allowed so they'll wear like some neon green dress or some hot pink dress think it's allowed who told you it's allowed who told you it's allowed to be a traffic light and get the attention of every passerby even if he's flying 30,000 miles in the air no the key is to understand is that yes you're allowed to be pretty but don't become the center of attention the worst thing that a woman can do is put these types of pictures on the internet and social media social uh, profile pictures why because whatever blessing you were supposed to get you're losing with that single picture why that picture is attracting the minds of certain men men don't think like women when they see something that is forbidden to them 
immediately creates all types of things which leads them to waste seed either intentionally unintentionally with their wife without their wife with their girlfriend with their uh, whoever this is the problem of all problems why the second he wasted seed because of you whatever blessing you were supposed to get say kaddish on it why you are a hot uh, what is a neon green dress yeah but it's not red it doesn't have to be red it doesn't have to be red it's again it's pretty it's, you know it's, it's fine to be nice it's fine but who told you to be the center of, of attention in the middle of broadway and that's one of the things that people forget if you are really truly the daughter of god you are the daughter of the king of kings when was the last time that you saw the queen or the princess of some of the most powerful kings in the world walk around as if literally she's a ufo center of attention the whole world can see every single color shade and they're trying to figure out how many shades of pink blue and red was used on that single thread when was the last time you saw a princess look like that when was the last time you saw a queen look like that never why because princes and queens don't look like that how do they look classy beautiful but not the center of attention that you looks like you just came out of some nightclub and that's one of the things that women i'm talking about religious women fail at miserably at times where they think that oh as long as it's not this one thing this red or this purple everything else is a go mistake mistake um, among many mistakes that people make when it comes to modesty big thing is do not be the center of attention if you're the center of attention you have a problem why if people are thinking about sexuality as a result of looking at you it's your problem too oh but why is it my fault don't look okay don't look but you'll get punished for it anyway as much as many things that you can say this is the law that God uh, that put into law why all of Am Israel are responsible for each other you are responsible for your brother's sins you're responsible for your cousin's sins you're responsible why because you caused them and sometimes I have people tell me all types of issues that they have and literally you you wouldn't believe the sicknesses that are in people's minds these days I have some uh, some guys telling me that they have an attraction to their sister and they waste seed because they see their sister in different sh- ways she thinks she it's okay for her to walk around with a towel she doesn't realize she's the reason why her brother's gonna go to Ganon for a million and a half years unless he does juva and she's going with him mom but he's my brother it's disgusting to you maybe not to him and that's the thing that women are either too naive or just simply careless about as a princess as a queen you are not supposed to look like public property you're not supposed to look like a traffic light you're not supposed to be like a garbage pail that everyone can touch you have to look classy classy means modest classy means not the center of attention now this center of attention color of purple was designated for Mashiach why because he needs to be the center of attention the whole world is going to recognize he is who he is as a result of many different things one of the things he wears purple now of course if you see a bunch of idiots wearing purple tomorrow don't think that Mashiach came it's just a bunch of idiots bought purple but the key is to understand is that the Torah also tells us that there is significance in this 
Furthermore, in this very same verse that talks about purple, it gives us the hint of everything I just said. What does it say? That his his garments in wine, uh, he will launder his garments in wine and his robe in the blood of grapes. Now, the blood of grapes is... uh, said as bedam anavim suto so the chachamim say why is this word suto used for blood i mean for um the uh, the, the rope like why why is this this is a weird word to use here so chachamim say is to teach you that if the mashiach is wearing this clothing this purple clothing good but if it's a woman that's wearing something that's attracting the attention, she's going to be a sota. The suto is referring to the sota. The sota is the wayward woman that is suspected of cheating on her husband. Why? Why is she suspected? It all started with immodesty. It all started with her seeking attention of other men. Then we see that the blessing of Issachar and Zvulun. Zvulun gets a blessing before Issachar, even though Issachar was the scholar. Why? Because Zvulun got a blessing before him, because Zvulun was the one that financed the the, uh, Torah studies of Issachar. Their arrangement was, Zvulun will work, make money, study when he could, but the priority was to make money, and share 50% of the profits with his brother Issachar that would study Torah all day and all night. And because of that, even though Issachar is the one that actually studied the Torah, Zavulun gets a bigger blessing than him. Why? Because if it wasn't for him, Issachar wouldn't be able to learn. When Issachar gets the the blessing, we see that Issachar also gets a blessing where eventually he's going to inherit land and he's going to be uh, uh, successful. The Chachamim teach us that when it says that he will conquer territories of nations and eliminate their inhabitants, it's referring to the fact that when non-Jews look at the life of a Torah scholar, where even though he's learning Torah, he's teaching Torah, but he ends up becoming materially successful anyway, where even though he's learning Torah, he's not doing business, he's not buying properties, he's using most of his time to learn Torah, or all of his time to learn Torah, but yet he's still successful with finances, this gives the nations great chizuk, great strength, and desire to convert to Judaism. And that's actually what happened with Issachar. Issachar's success led the nations to convert to Judaism, hence the reason why it says he will conquer the territories of nations. The tribe of Dan says that the Yeshua Techa Kiviti Adonai that the Hashem I uh, for your salvation do I long O Hashem from Dan came uh, Samson Shimshon Agibor. Then we see that Yosef uh, is prophesied to have two tribes will emerge from Yosef. And receive the inheritance as we discussed. This is his two sons.
And then Yaakov goes into the details of how he's aware of the fact that his brothers, Yosef's brothers, went against him, became bitter towards him, retaliated against him, but the prophecy that Hashem gave him came back at them because he observed the Torah. And Hashem put him in such a position of power where the entire world relied on his sustenance. Yosef got the position of power unlike anybody else where he literally sustained the entire world. Now, there's a lot more, but I want to go into this one particular thing, which is, how do we know that Yosef at Sadiq really got this? Now, of course, you believe the Torah, you don't need any proof. But there are many people that have doubts. Or many people that have a weak belief, and they do need proofs. Or needless to say, they have a belief, but a proof will make it even stronger. So can we prove scientifically that Yosef HaTzadik really was who he was? The answer is yes. It has been proven. Archaeologists that spend many years going through the different parts of Egypt discovered extraordinary things. One of the things they discovered in 1887, a British archaeologist by the name of Professor Flinder Petrie walked between the rocks and sand of Egypt's Sehel Island on the Nile River, searching for evidence of Egypt's past. And there he found some of the most extraordinary findings in history. One of the things that he found was an extraordinarily huge boulder where on it are hieroglyphics of the exact events mentioned in the Torah of what happened with Yosef interpreting the dream for Paro, the seven years of famine, the seven years of sustenance, all of the details that are mentioned in the Torah to the T, where his brothers eventually come, Extraordinary details. Now, the only thing it's missing is the name Yosef. Rather, it says that there was a person by the name of Imhotep. Imhotep had become the second in command after Paro. He's the one that built the first pyramid that's still standing today. It's not as impressive as the ones you usually see on the media because its shell has decayed, but nonetheless it's still there. All its inside is still intact. And this Imhotep is the one that built, designed and built this first pyramid, which is the blueprint for the rest of the pyramids. This Imhotep displayed impressive knowledge of various sciences, medicine, engineering, architecture, philosophy. In so many words, he was the world's biggest genius. Sophisticated construction of the pyramids 
The striking characteristics are attributed to him because before him, the Egyptian structures that were built were one-story buildings. Whereas this particular pyramid is massive in size, different in shape. But the one interesting thing is that right next to this pyramid, if you notice, in the section over here, in the yellow, is an underground six-mile-long food storage warehouse. As the Torah says that Yosef had the only successful way of storing food in a massive, uncountable number. Here we see that this storage, one of the major units, is right here next to the, next to the pyramid that he built, that Himotep built. Now Himotep became a god to the Egyptians at some point and also to the Greeks. The Greeks called him the god of healing, Ascalipios. Inside this pyramid, they also found a statue of the Pharaoh that lived at the time and died, who the pyramid was built in honor of, Pharaoh Josel. And the statue of this Pharaoh, we see here, it's in a museum today. And on the bottom of it, it says, Himotep was a servant that built this. Meaning this viceroy, the second in command, is the one that made all of this, was a senior advisor. Now, this Imhotep also is credited for the papyrus from Egypt that's considered the oldest medical text which contains highly useful medical information that's useful until this day. And it's in museums today and actually studied by some medical experts. The sages of the Talmud said that the wisdom of Yosef was above and beyond the norm medical, archaeological. And when they see some of the documentation, some of the archaeology there, it looks too good. Can we prove it further? Yes. The story of Imhotep and how he came to be is actually a well-known story in Egypt's history. In fact, the different murals, different drawings that the Egyptians have actually put the immigration of the tribes to Egypt. Now, if you notice, these Egyptians... and. Again, we'll put the picture bigger 
when this video airs again this picture does not only prove that Imhotep is Yosef and that his brothers came and it's according to scientists archaeologists not according to me this is a larger image we see the distinguishing difference between the Semites and the Egyptians where the Semites have beards which was not something that was full whereas the Egyptians usually cut off their beards or just left a goatee or something small but also you'll notice that the Semites Yosef and his brothers were just like the sages said they were white and the Egyptians were black now how come the Hebrew Israelite craziness says that the Egyptians were black they're right the Egyptians were black the mistake of the Hebrew Israelites is that they already decided that all Egyptians are Jews they forgot that they were actually Egyptian Egyptians and of course the Am Israel the Jewish nation has more documentation than any other nation in history so it doesn't take much to prove archaeologically scientifically logically rationally spiritually biblically any way you want that the Jewish history is exactly as we know it this book has many other interesting archaeological findings one of the other things is that there is actually a, another mural that they shows Pao giving the special necklace to Himotep, just like Pao of the Torah gave a special jewelry, special necklace to Yosef. There's multiple of these, and they all say the names. So the only question left is okay you have the people you have the names you have the colors you have everything why is the name Imhotep just like the Holy Torah says Paro changed the name of Yosef to Tzfanat Parnecha but that was the Hebrew translation the biblical translation of the name the Egyptians didn't use the Hebrew translation of the name they used the Egyptian name and they used Himotep. Now, of course, the archaeologists that looked at this have concluded that this is indeed identical to Yosef. There are many, many other proofs in this book and other places. This book, by the way, for anyone that's interested, is called Hidden Treasures. Archaeology Discovers the Hebrew Bible by Rabbi Zamir Cohen. It was translated to English as well. This is volume one. There's an endless amount of proofs, but for the sake of time, I know that some of you want to ask questions, so the main message here is this. Our Torah is not divine because we have proofs of it. Our Torah is divine because God decided that it's divine. But if it helps you believe and accept that it's divine, after seeing these proofs, then good use them but always remember anytime you rely only on proofs to justify your belief it's only a matter of time before some heretic will come and confuse you with some challenging proof 
Why? That's the job of the heretics. That's the job of the Satan. This is the reason why a person cannot rely only on proofs to believe that the Torah is divine. You must learn Torah. Toil over Torah. Become one with the Torah. Because the more you delve into it and delve into it, you will see for yourself that everything is in it. Bezat Hashem, this will be enough encouragement for some of you to learn more with us on your own. And Bezat Hashem, get closer to Hashem. With that being said, I'm going to get a quick drink and then you guys can ask some questions. Okay, let's see. Questions are coming from Facebook because that's the one I can see. I still don't have the ability to see the questions from TikTok or the app, but that's work in progress especially if you guys keep sharing and the audience continues to grow, we'll work even harder on it. Okay, first question I see. Oh, it's gone. Jack, you sent the question and I saw it, but I didn't read the question and now somebody else asked the question, so your question is no longer on my screen. Uh, let's see. Okay, first question. Uh, no, I don't see questions. I see compliments. Thank you very much. Excuse me. Here we go. Avram. If someone stole money in business in the past and has stopped the sin, how exactly does he repay the amount that was stolen if it was a large amount? Is it allowed to give it staka uh, in the total amount stolen? Ah, very good question. So if a person stole this money, if he's Jewish and he stole it from another Jew, then he has to return it to that Jew. He has to return it to that Jew. He cannot give that money in staka. Now, unless if that Jew that he stole from died or he's simply uh, nowhere to be found, he's, he tried to find him, he's nowhere to be found, the, his kids, his wife are nowhere to be found and uh, you simply can't find him, then you could actually give that money to a public cause such as Kiruv or uh, some type of public uh, 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 need, a homeless shelter it could even be. Uh, in order to uh, do something that this person or his descendants could potentially benefit from. Of course, helping uh, the world learn more Torah is more beneficial than, uh, than anything else. But again, some people prefer to give it to homeless shelters or other public causes. Either way, that's only if you cannot find him. That's only if you cannot find him. Another time that this is applicable is if a person stole it from an entity, where if that entity were to find out that he stole from them, they would simply arrest him and put him in jail. Now, there's no mitzvah of you going to jail, so if, if you returning the money is going to put you in trouble, then you could again do the same thing that I mentioned and give the money for their behalf, on their behalf, uh, you know, to a public cause. Um, if, a, uh, if a person uh, stole from a non-Jew, the same applies. You have to return it to a non-Jew also. You're not allowed to steal from a Jew. You're not allowed to steal from a non-Jew. And in fact, the Rambam and several other poskim say that it's even worse to steal from a non-Jew than it is to steal from a Jew. And the reason why is because if you steal from a Jew, that Jew is simply going to say that you're a bad person. But if a non-Jew sees that you stole from him, that non-Jew is not only going to think you're a bad person, he's going to think that all Jews are bad people, which causes a desecration of God. So stealing from a non-Jew is much, much worse. Hence the reason why a person has to exert some effort to return to the person that they stole from, regardless of the amount. Little amounts, bigger amount, doesn't make a difference. Now, 
if the person is simply, like I said, not available and you've tried finding him, uh, legitimately tried finding him, not like you, you know, you called the same number you have from 35 years ago, it didn't work and you simply gave up. No, like you actually tried finding this person and he's not available, he's gone. Then again, you could go and give it to a public cause. Uh, if you would get in trouble by giving it back uh, legally, you could uh, go to jail or, or, or something like that. Then again, you can give it to a public cause. But uh, don't automatically assume you can give it to a public cause because sometimes a person will do that when it's very easy for them to find the person they stole from. They're just embarrassed to do it. And uh, they end up giving it to a public cause. And it's not, it doesn't fix. It doesn't fix the problem. It doesn't fix the stealing. So they go up to Shemaim and they're still considered a thief. And I know that many people don't want to return things that they stole because they're embarrassed. But you should know that the embarrassment is necessary in order for the repentance to be complete. So the embarrassed is the embarrassing part is actually necessary in order for the uh, the uh, tikkun to be complete. Next question, Elchanan is asking: Is the Sephardi does the Sephardi have peyot and putting tzitzit outside going against the common custom? Uh, something wrong and is there an halachic rules going against doing things like this okay so he's talking about me he's talking about how come i have peot and how come i'm wearing a tzitzit outside okay so i wear peot because i want to and my rabbi has peot and many of the chachamim throughout the generation from the sephardic world also had peot uh now even though it's not as common today for sephardi people to have peot like the Ashkenazim do, uh, needless to say, we have plenty of history in the uh, Jewish world, from the Sephardi world, that have peot. One of the greatest examples is Mordechai. Mordechai Yehudi, they were in Persia, they weren't Ashkenazim, they were Sephardi. Mordechai Yehudi, the Benishchai, who himself also had peot, uh, uh, the Benishchai says, why was Mordechai the first person in the entire Torah, the entire Tanakh, that's called Yehudi? He was called a Jew. Why was he called a Jew? Why was he called a Jew? Because he had such big peot that you can see them from far away. You can see and identify that this is Mordechai from far away. Why? Because he had huge peot. So obviously we see that the whole aspect of peot is a something that we have in the Sephardi world no less than we do in the Ashkenazi world. Now, the fact that it's not as common today among many Sfaradim does not mean anything. It means it's not as common, but there are plenty of tzaddikim that still to this day wear the peot. My dear Rabbi, Rabbi Ephraim, has peot that he has grown since he was born. He never cut his peot. Now, you don't see his peot the same way you see my peot because he puts his peot behind his ears. I put my ears the side of my face, but there are many people that do the same thing. It's a matter of preference. Now, a peah is not an obligation. A person simply is forbidden from shaving this part. This part over here. Now, as far as the peah, it's not a Torah obligation. It's simply an embellishment of a mitzvah where you're saying to God, I love your mitzvah so much, I'm going to do it extra. I'm going to go the extra mile. It's like, for example, your wife is, uh, you ask her, honey, can you make me something to eat? Now, you're hungry. You just came back from work. Even if she gave you a bologna sandwich with some mayo on it, you'd be happy as can be. Bologna sandwich, mayo, a cup of water. You're as happy as can be. But instead, your wife cooks up a storm. She makes chicken cutlet. She makes rice. She makes beans. She makes a special sauce. The favorite salad that you haven't uh, thought about in a few years. 
all the different things, she gives it all to you. She says, here, whoa, what's the occasion? The occasion is I love you. Now, if you're a normal husband, you say, I love you too. Thank you very much. Wow, you're the best wife on planet earth. Thank you. You didn't have to. I know I didn't have to, but I did it anyway. Why? Because I love you. This is in essence what we say to Hashem. When we are do something called Hidur Mitzvah. Hidur Mitzvah means to beautify the Mitzvah. Where we learned this from Yam Suf, where Hashem split the ocean into 12. And all of Am Yisrael got prophecies. They saw things of heaven that even uh, Yechezkel didn't see. The prophecy that Am Yisrael, while they were crossing the ocean, 12 different tunnels, one for each tribe. Even the babies that were in the, their mother's belly were able to see where the bellies literally became transparent. And all of Am Yisrael pointed at heaven and said, This is my God and I will glorify Him. So from there the sages teach us, we need to glorify God. How? Through the mitzvot. Where? If you have peah. Or if you have an etrog. An etrog. Some people, they buy an etrog for Sukkot. They buy a lulav from etrog. That's the last one left. Why? It's the cheapest. It's the one that you're not even sure if it's a lemon, if it's an orange, or it's an etrog. Yeah, 50-50 chance, maybe 30% chance. So you're not really sure. So what ends up happening? What ends up happening? They buy whatever is cheapest. What does that show to Hashem? You don't like my mitzvot. What does somebody like the mitzvot do? He buys the most expensive, most beautiful etrog you can possibly find. Why? I love your mitzvot. Yeah, but it's only for a week and I spent $500 on this piece of lemma, on this setrog. Uh, yes, 500 a 1000 whatever I can afford. Why? I love your mitzvot, Hashem. I love your mitzvot. Same concept when it comes to the love. Same concept when it comes to tefillin. Some people, they look for tefillin. Hey, Rabbi, how much is tefillin? It's on the website. $1,600 for one or the Rabbein Utam is $2,200. Oh, it's expensive. Oh, it's expel- expensive. Go buy on eBay. What can you want me to tell you? You can buy it for $30. Non-kosher feeling. You can even buy it from a toy store. I bought a couple of ones for my kids for a toy store because they like to play with stuff like that. 30 bucks. I could buy you one also if you want. You want a real pair of feeling? It costs money. Yeah, but this one's I can buy somewhere else for a thousand. Go buy it for a thousand. It depends. Quality. Quality. Everyone has to understand. The more a person wants to embellish a mitzvah, the more he has to prepare himself to spend and exert himself on it. Even more so, again, when it comes to the mitzvot, it is a special, special mitzvah to look Jewish, to look Jewish. Why? You're sanctifying Hashem's name by looking Jewish. When, when Jews were looking for merits that would justify them being exiled from Egypt, to get out of Egypt, what merits did he, we have? We were all idol worshippers. The Egyptians were idol worshippers, we were idol worshippers. We had no merits, one more sin that anybody would have made, all of Amisla would have been destroyed. What merits did we have? We protected our, our language, we also had our clothing. Our, what does it mean? We did not look like the Egyptians. So when a Jew looks Jewish, looks Jewish, that's a sanctification of Hashem's name. And that's actually one of the things that I highly commend the people of the Hasidut, Hasidut Satmer, Bobov, all of these great Hasidut that intentionally, intentionally look different till this day from the world. From the world. Of course, there are some Sephardis that also intentionally look different than the rest of the world. Why? Separate yourself from them. Now, unfortunately, what, is the, what do most people do today? They do the opposite. They want to look like everybody else. All of a sudden, you see people coming to shul with a, uh, with a tight suit, 
tight pants like they just came out of some uh, some uh, hot 97 video they just came out of some rap video or perhaps they're uh, they're going into some nightclub what happened to your suit what is it from when you were 12 years old you're 50 why is your suit so small no this is the style you like it no no it's too tight it looks like it belongs to your little brother your suit's too tight you look ridiculous no what do you mean this is the style all oh, this this thing cost three thousand dollars you got robbed buddy they sold you a kid suit they sold you a kid suit why you want to look like the rest of the nations you want to look like the rest of the nations now when a person is trying to look different because of their judaism not because they want to look different then of course this is something that is great now you don't have to look as different as the hasidim but at the same token it's a it's it's certainly something to be appreciated now as far as when it comes to the tzitzit the tzitzit is a uh, there's uh the main tzitzit that a person is supposed to wear is a woolen tzitzit is a woolen tzitzit he's not supposed to wear a uh, uh the cotton tzitzit but because it's hot because people are uncomfortable for and of all types of reasons more people wear the uh the cotton tzitzit than they do the woolen tzitzit but the real mitzvah the the ultimate way of of, of doing the mitzvah you can see in the Yakut yourself and other chachamim is the woolen tzitzit now a person in the previous generations the way they would wear it is they would wear the tzitzit on the outside on the outside this has changed over time some chachamim still wear it on the outside some chachamim wear it on the inside most people wear it on the inside in fact there's a significant difference between the majority of uh the safari and ashkenazim where the ashkenazim put their tzitzit outside where the ptilim the uh the strings the actual tzitzit itself is on the outside for the ashkenazim where the sfaradim actually put it inside this was the minag of ravavadya now it doesn't mean that it's forbidden to have it on the outside it's simply that was the custom when it comes to customs a person uh you know is uh can have his own unique customs to a certain extent as long as he's not causing other people to go astray as long as he's not causing the uh he's not doing something that is intentionally the opposite of the community but uh when it comes to uh for example for myself when i was in israel uh i uh you know i looked like everybody else i had the suit on i had the uh the uh you know the the black and white but my tzitzit generally speaking more times than i was on the outside when during my event was on the outside but sometimes it was on the inside why because i either knew that i was meeting certain people that uh to them would make a difference certain big rabbis that to them would make a difference if my tzitzit was on the outside or the inside to me it doesn't really make a difference i just feel more comfortable when it's on the outside but uh so to them in israel they, they're more particular about clothes than they are here in america uh so i did that but uh when i'm generally outside of that when for example i'm either at my own lectures or i'm giving a lecture here or at events generally speaking i wear my tzitzit outside it's much more comfortable for me and it's not negating anybody else's custom because i'm not part of anybody else's community that is causing them to change anything now if i were to be hosted let's say for example at a uh, at a community that uh, they were very strict about having their tzitzit inside then i would easily put my tzitzit on the inside i'm not going to go against the community's customs uh but uh if if i'm not part of it then it's not a problem 
Now, as far as the, uh, uh, the, the traditions that we've had throughout the generations, we've had, again, like I said, in both the side of the uh, Sephardi as well as the side of the Ashkenazi, uh, where the uh, Tzitzit were worn on the outside, the Peot uh, uh, certainly were worn among both Ashkenazim and Sephardim. Uh, but there were also times that some of these things changed, like for example, in the early 1900s, during the times of the Sabami Navaldok, the altar of Navaldok, uh, and the Sabami Slavotka, uh, where the, uh, the, uh, the, the Avrechim, the people that were Torah scholars, were uh, insulted to such an extent that people looked at them as paupers. So the Sabami Slavotka made it a rule that all of his uh, uh, students had to shave and had to wear very pristine suits to look like businessmen. So when you see many of the Chachamim, many of the Gdole Ado of the previous generation, you see them, they look like uh, bankers. But they were huge Torah scholars. But you looked at clean shaven, no beard, no tzitzit sticking outside. They look like business people. Why? This was intentionally to raise the view of the public image of the Torah scholars. So there were different takanot made at different times. Also at different cities, different places had different takanot. You know, the takanot they had in the Middle East were different than the takanot that they had in, uh, in Europe and so on and so forth. But again, the, uh, the world today is a, uh, doesn't necessarily have the one leader that is leading everyone. This is the reason why uh, it's more important for a person to have a rabbi than any other time in history. And you know, anytime that I do anything, I ask my rabbi, what can I do? What can I not do? If it was up to me, I would, uh, and I'm still looking to, to, to finally get it, I would get the same uh, clothing that they have in Saudi Arabia until this day, the kaftans that they have over there, and then I would actually put a turban on, just like the Rambam, and this is the way I would prefer. Why? Because, number one, I feel that it's more connected uh, to my uh, ancestors that way, uh, but even uh, more so, I simply think it's better looking than the clothes that you can find in stores. Now, if you look at my closet, I have a closet that came from Wall Street. I was on Wall Street for nearly 20 years. So I have 50 suits. Each suit is two, three, four, five thousand dollars $5,000. Now, I haven't worn all of those suits in many years. Some of them are probably look like they belong to my uh, baby kids. But nonetheless, they're expensive suits. They're beautiful suits. I don't wear them. Why? I don't find myself comfortable in them. Now, if I go to a specific event, a yeshiva or something else, and obviously the... Uh, uh, I need to wear a suit. I wear a suit, but generally speaking, when I'm home or when I'm giving lectures or anything like that, I try to wear clothes that's comfortable for me. I try to wear clothes that's as, as comfortable as possible, and I actually think that the clothes from the uh, Middle East is by far the most comfortable-looking clothes there is. I'm just, uh, I'm, I don't have the time to go look for that stuff, but eventually you guys may end up seeing me in a turban looking like the Rambam and, uh, and uh, perhaps with uh, some uh, Saudi Arabian or Moroccan uh, kaftan. I have one, I just haven't uh, put it on yet. But uh, either way, this is something, every time I do anything, I do it with uh, uh, permission from my rabbi, uh, whether it's allowed, not allowed, should do it, not do it. Uh, there was one time I did a, uh, years ago, I did a uh, video, and uh, right after I finished praying, and I still had my tefillin on, and I gave a shiur Torah. And after I, uh, you know, I, I recorded the video, 
And uh, after I watched the first few minutes of the video, I felt a little uncomfortable. I'm not, you know, I mean, generally speaking, when I give shulim, I don't give shulim when I have my tefillin on. And so this was a new look, and I, I didn't like it, even though I obviously my tefillin are very holy. I love them, and, and I, uh, you know, it's an opportunity just to simply touch them. Uh, but still, giving a shiur with it, many tzaddikim do it, but uh, to me it looked a little odd. I asked my Rav, what do you think? And uh, he told me, all right, it's not you. It's not you. I said, okay, it's not me. It's not going on. It's not going on. I'm not going to post this, uh, this shiur. Thank God it was only a few minutes yours. It wasn't uh, much lost. But the point being is, is that you have to be concerned of uh, certain things. And I have a rabbi that I ask him if there are certain things that I can, certain things that I can't do. Uh, there are many people that uh, usually do first, ask second. They just started doing tshuva three months ago and they already want to grow a beard longer than the exile. They, uh, they just uh, started the process of conversion. They already have peyot longer than the uh prob- list of problems that am Israel has oh you are impaled you're not even jewish yet oh you know i feel that way okay you know so people do people like the exterior with me it's again there are certain things that i do appreciate but it wasn't it didn't all come naturally to me like if you would have told me 10 years ago that one day i was going to have peyot uh, I would probably just simply just laugh at you, just at how ridiculous you are. And I was, you know, it's 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 not something I connected to. The only time I do something is if I connect to it. If if this is something that's going to help me serve Hashem just a little bit more, just a little bit more. Uh, if a, whether it's the peyot, whether it's a uh, uh, you know certain learning, certain things I think about while I pray, there are certainly different things that uh, can help. And if it helps. I use it, but uh, the one main thing that's very important for me personally uh, is to be comfortable. I don't like to uh, uh, um, add to the pain that I already have uh, in my body, so um, one of the things that I try to do as much as possible is to uh, not add to the pain. So clothing, uh, shoes, things like that, these are things that uh, I'm uh, very particular about, that it's as comfortable as possible. If it's not comfortable, I simply don't wear it. Uh, I don't really, um, I'm not particular about as far as the uh, the looks of things, the style, the brand. I mean, I already went through that phase. I was on Wall Street. I made millions. I had all that stuff in the past. None of that stuff really means anything to me. If it's, uh, it could be $5. If it's comfortable and it looks presentable, I'm in. If it's $500, presentable, if I could afford it, I'm also in. The price is not the relevant part. The part is that if it fits the uh, the, the lifestyle that I have. Uh, but again, it's a, I also have to be aware of the things that are around me. Right now, I'm trying to build a community. I'm not part of any community. So it's not uh, my, uh, my particular uh, look or ways and so on. I'm not affecting anyone other than my online students that are all over the world. Uh, but uh, if if I was, let's say, for example, part of a uh, Ravavadya's community while he was still alive, it's very likely that none of this would uh, would happen. Why? Because there was a certain look that the Rav expected from you, and uh, uh, that uh, that's what you would have to be. And that's what I would be. But you know, again, the circumstances change depending on where you are. By the way, whoever it's it's if a uh, Anyone thinks I get offended, I'm not offended by any question, so you don't have to worry about anything. Um, you guys can ask questions about me as much as you want. I'm pretty much an open book. Uh, is it a coincidence that the spelling of 
Jong, King Jong Un, is similar to Gogu Magog. How is it similar to Gogu Magog? Just because there's a Gimel and a Vav and a Gimel? Uh, I don't say so, uh, Gogu Magog is uh, not uh, not going to be. I don't believe it's going to be China, but uh, you know whether it is or it isn't remains to be seen. The Rambam writes uh, in Ilchot Melachim that as much as we have information in the uh, Gemara, Masechet Sanhedrin, Perik Chelek has a whole segment about Mashiach, the timing, the resurrection, who's Mashiach, the names of Mashiach, the timing of Mashiach. All that stuff, we're not going to know what is going to be until it's going to be. That's what the Rambam says. That's a uh, so as far as whether it's uh, King uh, King Jong Un or it's Putin or it's Donald Trump or it's a person that we don't even know exists yet or it's whoever it is, that stuff is uh, you know not something you should spend any time on because it's speculation. Many people thought that uh, Osama bin Laden. Now Obama, 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 Barack Obama was Gog because there was some statues from Egypt that he looked like the Egyptians. So they thought he was, uh, even, there was even a uh, Jewish uh, uh, speaker uh, at the time that uh, made a bunch of videos about this and wrote a book about it of how he thinks that uh, Obama was going to be Gog and he's going to be the enemy and Obama came and left and everything is the same. Okay, next. Uh, thank you for the compliments. I'm looking for more questions. Okay, Alfred. Can I borrow from family members even if they're wicked? Uh, yeah, sure. You can borrow from them and uh, return from them. Sure. Uh, Leah, so just to be clear, women aren't allowed to use purple or red clothes. Uh no, that's not what I said. What, what I'm saying is that the main thing is not necessarily just the color. It's how it looks. How it looks. Because if you have, let's say, for example, multicolor dress that has purple in it or has red in it, it's not a problem. It's not a problem. If you have a, uh, a shade of uh, purple or, or, uh, uh, or red that is very, very faint, and uh, you have a jacket over it or something like that. Also, again, not a problem. But if you have a hot pink dress or a neon green dress, that's not allowed. Even though it's not purple and it's not red. It simply stands out too much. So it's not necessarily just the color per se. It's the standing out. Standing out. But as far as having purple in your dress, having red in your dress, uh, in itself is not a uh, problem at all. It's, uh, it's, it's whether you are uh, attractive or attracting. If you're attracting the attention of the, uh, of the construction workers on the street, it's a problem. If you're simply looking attractive for your husband, that's fine. That's fine. It's, you're supposed to look attractive for your husband. Uh, excuse me for a question. Uh, you don't translate these teachings into Spanish to share them. Uh, well, we do translate a lot of our videos to Spanish, but you should know that to translate videos to different languages, we have, uh, I think, 10 different, 10 or 11 different languages that some of my videos are translated to, and it takes an enormous amount of effort and resources to translate stuff, because uh, we're not using machines to translate, we're using people. So it takes an enormous amount of effort, even if you have, uh, you know, like our Spanish team, 
they're uh, they could teach Spanish. They know Spanish. It's uh, it's it's a uh, different dialects. I mean, it's a uh, they're experts. But that doesn't make their work any easier. It still takes an enormous amount of time to not only translate the words to something appropriate in the uh, to in Spanish, for example, but also to actually put the words on the screen at the right time that I'm actually saying it. And uh, it's not easy. It's not easy. So we definitely uh, translate many of the videos I have. I have probably three, four thousand videos. So we've translated many of them. Uh, to Spanish and other languages, but uh, to translate the weekly lecture to Spanish, I would need to have a team probably 10 times the size that I have right now in order to do that because it just simply takes that much more effort. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a huge, huge undertaking, but uh, anyone that's willing to uh, uh, fund it and uh, give us the resources to do so, we'd be happy to do it. It's just that with what we have, we're doing what we have, Baruch Hashem. Uh, let's see. I don't know what that means. Sorry. I see things on the TikTok screen, but I don't know what they mean. Can't really see. Uh, let's see. You said we don't have to say a blessing. Do we rather say a blessing? What? You said we don't have to say blessing, that we rather say blessing when we lose money. Please, I want to understand more. Ah, okay, so... If somebody inherits money, if somebody inherits money, they naturally would think, oh, I just inherited $10 million, okay? They would think, oh, since I got this big thing, I should bless God. I got a big blessing. Just like if you're about to eat something, you bless God. You're about, you just got something new that you're enjoying. You say, Shekhyan, you bless God. Uh, you, uh, there, you can't, the Gemara in Masechet Brachot says you're not allowed to enjoy something in this world without blessing God first or else you're considered a thief. But the very same sages teach us that if you got an inheritance of money, you do not bless God for it. Why? Because it actually could be a curse rather than a blessing where the extra money will cause a person harm such as a person before he had a lot of money, was happy in his marriage, was happy with his kids, was happy with his job. All of a sudden, he is a new lotto winner. All of a sudden, his wife for 20 years became ugly in his eyes because he has more choices available to him now because he has an extra few million. All of a sudden, his kids are not as important to him anymore. Why? Because he wants to go have fun because he has money to go do things that he couldn't do before. All of a sudden, his job that he worked in and dedicated his life in for the last 25 years and built a huge customer base is worthless to him. He simply quits the next day without even being considerate to his boss that provided to him and that he even gave him loans. He doesn't care. So that money causes him to act in a very negative way, as it does most people. Most people cannot pass and do not pass the money test. It's much easier much easier for a person to pass the test of poverty than to pass the test of wealth. Why? Because with poverty, you're limited with the amount of sins you can make. With wealth, you literally have an unlimited amount of sins that you can make. So when a person inherits a lot of money, the sages say that it could be an actual uh, punishment on a person where the money that is being given to them is to their detriment where Hashem is punishing this person by giving them a benefit in this world and cause, to cause them to sin even more than they already have because they've already 
made enough sins where they've eliminated themselves from Olam Abba. So now it's just him increasing the fire. Why? It's a form of revenge, as we say in Tehilim today, every Wednesday. El nekamot Hashem, el nekamot ofia. Hashem the, uh, uh, is the, is the uh, God of vengeance. The God of vengeance arrived. This is one of the forms of vengeance that God takes on his haters. What do you think these uh, rich lefty billionaires are being blessed? No, they're being cursed. Look at what's actually happening in their real life. You think that uh, uh, Bezos is happier today than he was 20 years ago? I'll bet you anything that he was happier 20 years ago before he had a zillion dollars. Why? Back then he loved his wife. Back then he loved his life. Today he's constantly competing against his self from yesterday. He's competing against a bunch of uh, figments of his imagination. Left his wife, left his life. I mean, it's, a, it's, it's unfortunately a, uh, a sickness. Success, success that uh, loses control is a sickness. It's not a, uh, it's not a good thing. But if, a, if a success is used in a positive way, it could certainly be a good thing. There are some very, very righteous people that were very successful. Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Akadosh, uh, David Melech, uh, Moshe Rabenu. There were certainly many people that were very, very successful, but knew how to handle success. Most people do not know how to handle success. Uh, let's see. I would like to hear your advice to help a Noahide quit cold turkey smoking cigarettes uh you don't have an obligation to quit smoke sir quit smoke uh quit smoking uh but uh if you care about your surroundings uh then certainly you should quit because if you're already a smoker and i was a smoker of cigarettes for over two decades generally speaking people that smoke cigarettes do not really care about their own health they like cigarettes more than they like their health so the way to, uh, to uh, look at it is not from your own perspective, but from the perspective of other people. Now, one thing that most smokers don't realize is that they smell terrible all the time to people that are not smokers, even when you're not smoking, even when you're not smoking. And in fact, right after you finish smoking, you literally smell worse than manure to anyone that's not a smoker. Uh, now, you're not going to realize that until you stop smoking. So if you have a wife, if you have a husband, if you have children, if you have people that you care about, you should know that to them you smell worse than manure. Now, they love you and they're probably not going to tell you, but I will because you're asking for help. That's one. Two, if you're intimate with your spouse, it's very, very uh, unpleasant to be next to a smoker. Uh, quite frankly, it, you know, it could be very disgusting and it could disgust your spouse during very intimate moments. That's second thing. And brushing your teeth is not necessarily always enough uh, simply because your body smells when you're a smoker. Three, certainly it's not improving your health. And if a person wants an opportunity to serve God for the longest amount of time, they wouldn't jeopardize their health. So you should try to do your best to at the very least not worsen your health in, in order to be able to serve Hashem for even longer. And last but not least, Watch my videos about quitting smoking, which goes over what I just said, plus a few other things, and the Hashem you'll succeed. Uh, your Talit Katan, where did you buy that? <laughs> ah, you guys are really into my clothes, okay. 
I should start a fashion uh, line. I have uh, big taliot on the website. Barely anybody buys them. But the stuff that I wear, maybe I should start wearing my big talit. Uh, where did I buy my big talit? I buy my stuff from Israel. I don't really buy anything from America. I order everything from Israel. Uh, same thing with the stuff that I have on the website. Everything that we have comes from Israel. It doesn't come from America. Uh, so I order the tzitziot. I order talit. Uh, I give them the specifications of what I want, whether it's the size or whether it's the thick uh, tzitzit. Uh, I order it and then I, uh, um, you know, and it gets there, whatever. It doesn't get there like uh, if you bought something from your uh, American store. Uh, it takes a while, but, uh, you know, it's, uh, for me, it works. Now, if you want to uh, uh, order a, t- a tzitzit, uh, one or two of them, uh, then you can go to, uh, there's a website called uh, Ben's Talit. Ben's Talit, something like that. And they, they provide good products. They, uh, I've bought from them in the past before also. They're actually based out of Israel, but they have like a uh, um, user-friendly website where they'll ship it to you here. I guess maybe they have a place here in America. Either way, I think it's called Ben's Talit. And uh, they let you, dis- you know, like pick the talit, whether you want it to be thick, whether you want it to be a uh, Sephardi uh, a tie, a Ashkenazi tie, a Rambam tie, or a uh, tie of Hasidut. They give you like the options. You can build your talit. Uh, if you don't find the website by looking at Ben's talit on the, on the online, just send me a text and I'll find the link and send it to you. But it's, I think it's, I think it's, it's called Ben's talit. They have good stuff. I bought stuff for myself. I bought stuff for my uh, uh, kids from there in the past. And I've, I've actually recommended it to a few students. But generally for me, I buy my stuff from Israel from somewhere else. I don't buy it from uh, them because I buy uh, usually larger quantity uh, and uh, I buy it that way. Um, how did you come to the realization that you wanted to become a Kiruv Rabbi? I did not come to the realization that I wanted to become a Kiruv Rabbi. Uh, I was uh, thrown into it by my Rabbi. He told me that... Uh, uh, I know how to speak, uh, which uh, I knew that I knew that because that was a big part of what I did for a living. And uh, he said, go teach. So uh, he says, I do. Uh, you know, it's I do something that um, very rarely do. I don't really, honestly, I don't really know anybody that does the stuff that I'm willing to do for the sake of Torah and, uh, and, and, uh, and Hashem. Um you know, as far as the, uh, not that I'm so righteous or anything, it's just that uh, I have this thing where I have, uh, I knew that uh, my ego is either going to destroy me or, uh, or help me. And uh, one of the things that I decided early on is that if my rabbi says something, I simply do it. And it's very hard at times. It was much harder in the beginning. But I don't really know anybody that does that. Most people, they ask for the advice after they've already done something else. Or they ask for the advice. If they don't like it, they do something else. <laughs> uh, so, like, I, you know, people ask me for stuff. They say, oh, what do you think? And I say, if I say something that they don't like, oh, but what do you think about this? Or what do you think about that? And they start arguing with me. You know, generally speaking, most people don't really want rabbi advice. The only people that I know that really listen to rabbis are either Torah scholars, like really serious Torah scholars, or Hasidim, like real Hasidim. Those are the only people that actually listen to, the, to their rabbis. Most people in general, you know, don't listen to rabbis. They, you know, they chop around. Today, I'm their rabbi. Tomorrow, somebody else is their rabbi. Next week, somebody else is their rabbi. 
I've had people that literally one day Asher Meza was their rabbi, the next day I'm their rabbi. Another day somebody uh, uh Suto is a rabbi. Another day is uh, you know some other Amalek is their rabbi. You know, it's, it's I've had people that jump around. Why? It ha- all has to do with ego. All has to do with ego. So for me, one of the things that I knew is 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 a uh, to my detriment is my ego. So if I'm going to win, if I'm going to argue, I'm going to win every argument. But I'm going to lose Olamaba. So I decided early on that if the rabbi says it, obviously he knows more than me. Obviously, once for my best interest, even though I don't necessarily uh, agree with everything or see everything he sees at first, I'm simply going to do it. And uh, Baruch Hashem, I have a, the best wife on planet Earth that agreed to go along with all of this and even push me to do all of this and is all, you know with me through all of this. And uh, that's what we do. He says we do. Uh, but... Uh, to be honest with you, I haven't met any uh, anybody else that does that. I've met people that pretend like they listen to a rabbi. They pretend that they have a rabbi. They pretend to call me their rabbi or call Rabbi Mizrahi their rabbi or call somebody else their rabbi. But uh, generally speaking, most people uh, that I know at least, uh, unless they're Torah scholars or they're Hasidim, they don't really understand what uh, what the rabbi is. They, uh, they just, It's just people let their ego in uh in a way now again if you're anybody that i talk to or the dear student or a friend don't get offended by this it's just simply reality uh it's 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 not something that uh is easy to do but it's certainly something that everybody needs to work on i have to work on it also i mean what do you think i don't argue sometimes you don't think that i don't uh disagree sometimes i do but generally speaking uh i uh never do anything that my rabbi tells me not to do never Say, uh, so even if I could argue until I'm blue in the face, it doesn't make a difference. If he says no, no. Simple. And I've had to make some very difficult decisions. So I think that the the biggest part that um, it helped with is the fact that it put me in this position where I was able to make this into uh, a life where I could learn, I could teach other people. And, uh, and that's it. Now, as far as uh, did I ever think that it's going to get as big as it got or that uh, you know, I'm ever going to know anything? No, I still don't think I know anything. And I still don't think it's anywhere near as big as it should be. But, um, you know, it's, I'm doing my best. And uh, it's, it's helping a lot of people. Um, but uh, it, comes, it, comes with, it comes with its tests. It comes with its tests. It's not necessarily a desire to be a Kiruv rabbi. It's uh, simply a desire to help people, which I've always done my whole life, but this is, uh, you know, a, a different way of doing it. Uh, what should we say to the wicked people that are against metzitzah uh, What you should say? You should say nothing to them because they don't deserve even a conversation because they're amearatzot uh, and burim. They're ignoramuses and burim. And uh, had they believed in our Torah, in our oral Torah, in our tradition, then this would not even be an argument. The ones that have an argument with it, it's because they are, number one, ignoramuses, two, heretics, three, uh, you know, very, uh, very sick people, very, very sick people to think that a holy rabbi uh, is doing a brit milah for free on an eight-day-old baby for the sake of sexual pleasure. 
That's a sick, sick mind. Anyone that thinks like that should be instituted. They should be put in a cage right next to, to, to Joe the elephant and Joshua the bear. That's where they, if anyone actually thinks that a holy rabbi that works for free is going to put in his mouth a bloody uh, a member, okay, male member of an eight-day-old baby in his mouth for the sake of helping the baby, but he gets a sexual pleasure out of it, whoever thinks like that is so sick that I wouldn't be surprised if this person is like Bil'am and his, his wife is a dog or a donkey. I wouldn't be surprised if this person is married to another guy. I wouldn't be surprised if this person is, is uh, wasting seed 15 times a week. Why? Because that's a sickness to actually think like that, to think that a grown man that spends his entire life learning Torah works for free. Okay, he's not, you know, the, 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 uh, the, uh, the Mo'alim don't make money off of the, off of the Brit Milah. Learns all day, works for free, okay? On top of it, he does a surgery for free, and then in order to save the baby's life, he has to put this bloody piece of meat in his mouth. Anyone that thinks this will give a anyone sexual pleasure is a very sick person. Interestingly enough, those very same people that are against Metzitzaba Peh, they're not against LGBT. They're not against the homosexuals running the streets and running the media. They're not against the pedophiles that are in practically every school in America that are inviting more pedophiles and all types of transvestites to tell stories to their five-year-old kindergarten class. They're not a, they don't have a problem with the lefty liberals that are telling the boys that they're girls. They don't have a problem with some transvestite dancing half-naked in front of a group of kids. They don't have any problem that the children's books actually have pornography in it. What do they have a problem with? A holy rabbi that works for free performs a surgery that is 4,000 years old. And uh, they have a problem with that. that, he, that this is a sickness. This is a, literally a mental sickness, a spiritual sickness, and they should be put in a cage. They should be put in a cage, instituted. Uh, we should pray for them, perhaps start a WhatsApp group for them. Everybody should pray for those people to hopefully get out of the mental institution they're in after they're healthy, because so long as they are the way that they are, they are a danger to society. Because it's those types of people that are literally so spiritually sick, they will see nothing wrong with pedophilia that is all over the world, all over media, all over Hollywood, all over this public school system, all over the streets, no problem. TED speakers, TED, you know, TED, TED, they have speakers that promote pedophilia. People that have published books that tell you that pedophilia is a sexual preference not a crime they don't have a problem with those people who do they have a problem with with the holy rabbi that is giving a surgery to an eight day year old baby eight days what can you possibly do with an eight day year old baby even if you were sick needless to say when there's 150 people right next to you i mean this is a sickness sickness and people like that should be instituted. They need to be instituted. They should be put on an island.
and and literally left with the monkeys because they're so sick it's worse than like the 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 movies that type of sickness because it's 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 not a matter of ignorance it's a matter of hatred of something that's so foreign to them while the acceptance of something that should be familiar to them it's the highest level of contradiction that there is but again most people think oh wait but what about if it's an adult don't worry no adult is putting the male member of another adult in his mouth they use tubes there's no interest for that it's only works for the child not for the adult no need for the adult but their sick mind they're still not going to be appeased with this because yeah but what are the baby and the baby and the baby let me ask you do you have any babies did you ever change your baby's diaper did you ask your baby for permission who says your baby wants you to change his diaper maybe the baby likes his little poopies and the little titties and a little everything that he has maybe he likes it no he was crying maybe he likes crying how do you know how do you know maybe he likes crying maybe he likes the diaper maybe he likes to be uh feel like he's in mud are you one of those people that you need permission from kids to change diapers no why you know the best guess what we know the best for our kids needless to say our sages and our god knows the best for us and the reason why i said don't speak to them is because everything i said is the only version of the truth you can tell them and they're not going to let you say everything i just said why they'll leave within five seconds they'll leave within five seconds why because they are not interested in the truth they're interested in making fun and people that make fun the Gemara, in multiple places in Masechet Avodah and other places says the beginning of their punishment is suffering beginning okay Rabotai Kareem, very very good questions thank you very much for learning with me may Hashem bless each and every single one of you with Siat Dishmaya divine assistance in your learning of Torah in your Parnassah in your Zivug in your life in your connection to Hashem and Bezat Hashem you continue learning with us share this you or anyone that wants to support our organization can go to the website bezatashem.org or bhtorah.org or the many other websites we have on our youtube channel and other places you can donate over there you could also sponsor the next extra if you'd like there's many many ways to support but one thing that everyone could do even without money is simply press share and send it to as many people as you can call to shabbat shalom to everybody